Hi, I'm Ella Brady, and this is the Yui Podcast. This week, we are publishing an episode produced by Shareable, featuring the final Cities at Tufts session of the spring semester. This idea that, that we're going to have a fully formed idea that springs from the brain of some genius planner or designer is a bit flawed. And I think that the most important part of the design process really is that sort of first level of research and analysis and site analysis and talking to people who are passing through the area and like trying to figure out how is this actually used and what would actually benefit somebody here. Some people see it as tedious or complex, but to me, that's where it gets really human. Welcome back to Cities of Tufts Lectures, where we explore the impact of urban planning on our communities and the opportunities to design for greater equity and justice. I'm your host, Tom Llewellyn. The past, present, and future state of cities contains an infinite number of stories, case studies, and tangents that we can never do justice to on a podcast series, let alone a single episode. But today, we'll begin to scratch the surface with a conversation between Kurt Kolstedt co-author of the 99% Invisible City and a producer of the 99% Invisible podcast, and Lily Link, the creator of the Footnotes podcast and a recent Tufts urban planning and design graduate. In addition to this audio, you can watch the video and read the full transcript of their conversation on shareable.net. And while you're there, get caught up on past lectures. And now, here's Professor Julian Adjuman, who will welcome you to the Cities of Tufts Spring Colloquium before passing the mic to this week's guest co-host, Becky Eidelman, co-chair of the Student Policy and Planning Association at Tufts University. Welcome to the Cities at Tufts Colloquium, along with our partners Shareable and the Kresge Foundation. This is the final of our spring semester. I'm Professor Julian Adjuman, and together with my research assistants, Megan Tenhoff, and Perry Scheinbaum, we organize Cities at Tufts as a cross-disciplinary academic initiative, recognizing Tufts University as a leader in urban studies, urban planning, and sustainability issues. And as our speaker was chosen by the Student Planning and Policy Association, I'm gonna hand over to Becky Edelman to take the proceedings further. Becky. Great, thank you so much for kicking us off, Julian. Welcome everybody and good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you are. I'm Becky and I co-chair the Student Planning and Policy Association with my good friend and co-chair Katie Swan. And we're very excited to have Kurt Colstead of the podcast 99% Invisible and Lily Link who graduated from UEP last year to podcasters. Initially that was not our theme necessarily. We were hoping to talk about design in cities, but through serendipitous and happy circumstances, we were able to get two people who think a lot about the way that we perceive cities and the way that we as planners communicate about cities. And I'm excited to hear from them both. With that, I will turn it over to Lily. Hello, I see some familiar faces. My name is Lily Link. I am a Tufts, very recent Tufts UEP alum. I technically graduated in February because it took me so long to finish my thesis. Woo! But uh, my thesis was 
a podcast called Footnotes. It's a five-part series exploring the intersection of walkability and race. And my focus before grad school and continuing now is really on, like Becky said, how we communicate the planning and policy process to the general public. It's sort of become my obsession in the past couple of years. And in my new role, I just started a few months ago at the Citizens Housing and Planning Association. I'm the Municipal Engagement Program Associate there. So I partner directly with communities to help build support for affordable housing at the local level. And now I will pass it to Kurt since we're doing self-intros. Kurt. Hey, Lily. Um, thanks for having me. I share a lot of your passions, including podcasting and communicating about urban design with citizens. My background in a nutshell, I was trained as an architect at the University of Washington, Seattle, and um, I studied architecture, did an MRC, but I also took a lot of classes in urban design, policy, historic preservation, even landscape architecture. So I'm, I'm kind of a, a generalist when it comes to built environments. And then for the last five years, I've been working at 99% Invisible, which is a podcast about design. And in the broadest possible sense, it has things on urban design and architecture, but a lot more about design in general too. Awesome. Shall we dive in? Let's do it. All right. So you started to touch on this in your self-intro, but could you tell us a little bit more about sort of your background before 99% Invisible and how you got pulled into that world and maybe tied into that for anyone. I'm guessing people who are here probably know about the podcast, but just in case they don't, <laughs> what it is. <laughs> so I mean, I, I laughed when you were talking about how long it took to complete your thesis, because that that's where I started really was I was procrastinating my thesis and I launched this website called Web Urbanist. And it was about urban art, architecture, design. And partly, I mean, I started it partly to to share this passion that I had for this subject matter with the public. Like I, I was always telling people stories about what I was learning in school and, you know, trying to get people interested. And so I kind of decided, you know, maybe what I'm good at isn't design. Maybe I'm not meant to be an architect. Uh, maybe instead I'm, I'm meant to, you know, write about these things. And so I launched this site. It became pretty popular. And I did that professionally for seven years before bumping into Roman Mars, who's the host of I Am Percent Invisible. We got to talking and basically decided to team up. So I joined the show and it's been an amazing ride. I was a fan of his show. He became a fan of my website. We, we were kind of doing the same thing in different mediums. And it turned out to be like a really good opportunity to work together and talk about sort of similar things. Yeah. And he had he has this very different background where he kind of comes from a storytelling background. I come from a design background. And then when we put that together, we tell hopefully really good stories about design. Yeah, tell me, tell me more about the mission behind 99% Invisible. When we spoke last, you sort of used the phrase like sneaking in the veggies, sneaking in the design curriculum. Um, so maybe talk a little bit more about that. Sure. I mean, I think both Roman and myself have have our own ways of doing that, right? So I can, I can nerd about, out about any design topic of interest. And often, so I'll often try to find the most exciting thing that, that people can relate to, find accessible, that's sort of visually compelling. So if you put images up, people are like, oh, okay, that's, that's really different. I get that. And Rowan's vehicle for this is sort of the storytelling vehicle where he, he can find a really interesting story about, you know, the destruction of Penn Station. And then, you know, in the background, we're learning about a big shift in attitudes towards historic preservation. But in the moment, you're just hearing about these architects kind of 
protesting the destruction of a building and and I mean it's, it's got all the beats of a good story but beneath that you end up learning more about these things and I, the example that always comes to mind is, of this is like we've done stories on modernism postmodernism brutalism like all these styles of architecture but we never do one that's like here's your introduction to brutalism it's like no we'll take the craziest example or the most controversial example and we'll tell the story of that thing so that you have this level of emotional investment in the thing and you understand it not from just a sort of theoretical or historical point of view, but from the point of view of these characters who have a stake in this particular building or design or what have you. Right. And also you're making me think not to bring up my podcast again, but um, <laughs> I interviewed a woman named Carolyn Crockett and who's just amazing. Um, she's in episode four. And she talks about history, trying to help people see that history is just a series of individuals making decisions. And I feel like you could apply the same idea to 99% Invisible, helping people realize that cities are just a series of individual decisions. Absolutely. And another example that comes to mind is like curb cuts, right? Like we take for granted the, these things that allow people to get up and down from from street corners. And people of our generation, at least, like people who are our age and, and younger, that's all we've ever known. But, you know, somebody had to make the decision to push for those. And it turns out that the struggle to make those things universal, and they're still not fully universal, but but to sort of spread the good word of, of curb cuts is a very personal story. It's a really compelling story. And so telling that story helps people be aware of things that I've been in front of them all along, but I've probably never really thought too much about, right? We're just, you know, that's just a thing in the built environment. But it's like, no, somebody had to make that design decision and then really go out and promote that thing. And often, you know, <laughs> I think a lot of our of our listeners, they wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as having been interested in design before listening to the show. They just come for the stories. But it turns out the stories are about design and <laughs> that in turn shapes how you, you know, see the built world around you. Right. And making cities personal for people sort of, I mean, I certainly feel like something that my urban planning education has given me and listening to podcasts like 99% Invisible has given me is when I walk around either, you know, the city where I live, Somerville or somewhere new, I'm able to connect with things with these like little moments that otherwise might have just totally not even paid attention to. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you sort of asked what the mission of the show is. And I mean, if I had to boil it down into one thing, it, that would be it, right? It would be to get people to be aware of their surroundings and to kind of come at their surroundings with a kind of critical perspective and say, okay, I'm not going to just take this for granted. I'm going to I'm gonna inquire about why that thing is the way it is. And there's always a reason. And sometimes it's a good reason. Sometimes it's a horrible reason. But either way, we, you know, until we interrogate these things, we, we can't really begin to evaluate whether or not they're good or bad for our built environments. And ultimately, I think something that we share is the belief that by then allowing people to be aware of these things and the fact that these are, again, just a series of decisions being made by individuals is hopefully an empowering realization that if there is something in your city that you don't like, whether it's the transportation infrastructure or the housing infrastructure or a lack of public green space or what have you, that you do have the power, of course, not discounting all the ways in which people are disenfranchised and left out of the decision-making process, but that these decisions are ultimately made 
by people. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, it's like we might have unequal amounts of power, but even understanding that is a first step towards changing things for the better, changing power dynamics for the better, which in turn can lead to changing design for the better and cities for the better. Yeah. I guess I'll transition now. So we're sort of talking about um, both the podcast and the book a little bit interchangeably. So last, was it last year? Yeah. 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 Last year, time has become very... No, I've lost her. Uh, (laughs) Last year, you came out with this book, The 99% Invisible City, A Field Guide to the Hidden World of Everyday Design, which is in many ways a collaboration with Roman Mars, in many ways an extension of the podcast. But tell me about your decision to to branch into this new format. What motivated you to write the book? I mean, for me, it was it was a very logical extension. I mean, I've always been more of a writer. I've I've, I've done more with text than I have with audio. And so the idea of, of putting together something that is text-based just kind of made sense. And then there was also just a kind of critical mass of stories and research that we, we just had gotten to this point where between us, we've been doing this for so long, we've collected all this material, and we, and we have sort of larger ideas about the city. And it was a question of like, well, can we use, again, these smaller stories that make things personal, but but connect them and create arcs in such a way that we can make a whole big story out of it. And to some extent, I mean, it's called a field guide. Don't don't pick it up expecting like an Audubon birding guide exactly. But but partly the idea is that by the end of it, you know, you will spot things in your city and you will be able to sort of flip to the page that's about those things. And it's a way to like teach people what we were talking about earlier, you know, to see the things that they don't notice in cities and realize, I mean, this is what the last chapter really comes to. A lot of it's sort of history and, and these historical stories. And the last chapter, we really talk about how citizens can get involved and that kind of tension between top-down planning and bottom-up activism and the kind of good and bad things that can re- that can result out of all of that. But, but the idea is that by the end of it, hopefully people do feel more empowered to kind of question the way their city is and you know, try out solutions or or at least seek out other people who see the same problem so that you can organize and act around that problem. Yeah, so really kind of empowering people to have that knowledge in their hands at the ready. One of my favorite stories from the book is in, I believe it was Oakland, correct me if I'm wrong, the man who put um, a Buddha on the median to prevent, it was becoming a place where people were dropping a lot of litter and he tried all these different ways to get people to to stop doing that. And ultimately he decided to put a Buddha there because he felt like it was sort of less controversial than maybe other religious figures, but would give the space an air of importance that would prevent people from littering. And then this entire shrine popped up around, just like kind of naturally popped up around it as people in the community came to really love and revere the spot. And it became a place where tourists came by. And um, I think that's such an amazing story of a guerrilla tactic that then was imbued with meaning by the community and then became this like important thing that hopefully no one would dare to, to take down. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's a really remarkable story. And I, and I kind of love the accidental nature of it, right? Like he tried this thing and it turned out that there was this very significant local Buddhist community that embraced it and began to build out around it. And it sort of just worked for everybody. Like there was nobody found it 
offensive and you know it sort of did the job of displacing the trash that was piling up there and when i went and visited it the most recent time i noticed that there's like a broom up against the shrine it's clear like people come by if there is litter they clean it up and so for different parties it serves different functions like yep there are tourists who are just like oh that's that's a funny buddha sure whatever there's the guy who lives next door who's just glad that it's not a trash heap and then there's this community that really, really reveres and respects this thing. And <laughs> to the point where, you know, now like two blocks down, there's another little shrine popping up. And so, <laughs> so it became the seed of this, this much bigger thing. And that story also, like, I mean, that tells the, the dynamics of like, it's like, well, if you do something, what will the city do? And the city did talk about taking it down, but ultimately it was like, well, this seems to be working for people. Doesn't seem to be harming anyone. So one of the takeaways from that and and other stories I think in the book is, you know, try things. You never know how something's going to work until you try it or how well it's going to work. Yeah. And then sort of the on the sort of other end of this same idea of citizen intervention, another story in the book takes place just across the bridge from Oakland in San Francisco, where a group of, of wealthy neighbors in the hopes of pushing away people experiencing homelessness and, you know, general loiterers from their block spent like pooled two grand to buy a bunch of giant boulders and just put them on the sidewalk so that people couldn't stop and rest there. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, that's the dark side, right? If you, if you have people who feel empowered to intervene, they can intervene in ways that aren't great for a community or don't have the kind of consensus approval of the community. That was literally the last story we had to the book. And I remember I encountered it as a news story and was like, oh my, this is just the perfect encapsulation of these tensions. Like we have to add this to the book. <laughs> and so it was kind of a very last minute addition. And, and so basically, yeah, they paid to have these boulders trucked in, put along the sidewalks, they displaced people. People were like, well, where did these even come from? Did they come from the city? The city said, no, that wasn't us. And so they started rolling the boulders back into the street. <laughs> and of course, that was, a, you know, its own problem. And so the city kind of caught in the middle of all this is like, well, we can't have the boulders in the street. So let's lift them back on the sidewalk. And then, of course, the same people who were upset with that again. And it really it highlights the kind of the tensions between not just communities and the city, but also within communities about, you know, what are our priorities? What are our values? And in the end, they removed the boulders. I mean, the, the kind of consensus community opinion was we don't want to be displacing people. We don't need to like put obstacles in the way of people hanging out on the street. But there's also kind of a non-committal response from the city where they were like, well, we'll look into what to do here. And so, yeah, it's definitely not a universal good. And I think one of my takeaways from it is just that while we should feel empowered to make changes in the city, we should also really talk to other people around us before making unilateral decisions, especially big ones like this. I mean, it's one thing to put up a gorilla sign and see if it's helpful. It's another thing to drop in, you know, a ton of rocks, like a literal ton of rocks. <laughs> and, and uh, which, you know, is an imposition on everybody if, if that thing doesn't work out, right? Yeah, and I think this brings us back to the reality that People have different levels of access to the city and different levels of the ability to put their print on the city and make decisions for the city based off of various dynamics of power and privilege. And I mean, that's something that was really the focus of, of my podcast. And I think the story in my podcast that really summarizes it the best is from about a decade ago, a woman named Dr. Donia Lugo, who I interviewed, she 
does you know transportation advocacy work, she was participating in Parking Day, which is something probably a lot of people here know about. It's an annual event across the country where on one day, people just sort of guerrilla take over parking spots and turn them into little parklets to help us reimagine what public space could be and, and what that space could be used for. And so this, she was, she and a group that she was involved with decided to participate. And this was happening all over LA. There was a map, like people knew that it was happening, but they chose to do theirs in a neighborhood that was predominantly Latinx and people of color because they wanted to bring this to that neighborhood where there weren't a lot of other events going on. And within minutes of setting up their parklet, the police came and, and kicked them out. And she, you know, tells the story of after that experience, biking down the, the street, like half a mile over, she sort of crossed the neighborhood line into the white neighborhood where people were doing parking day all over the place, playing music and, and having a wonderful time. And, and no one was saying anything about it because the people in those spaces were white. And so I think that's just something that is needs to be constantly in our awareness as we think about guerrilla interventions and who has access to doing that. Yeah, I mean, in the the example that always comes to, to my mind, which is it's sort of an extension of that, essentially, it's like, well, parking day has been such a hit that cities like San Francisco have started to take it to the next level and say, well, you can make parklets and they could be year round, but they have to like serve the city and they have to do X, Y and Z. The problem is that some of these end up looking like extensions of the businesses they're next to. In fact, they're often sponsored by those businesses. Now, legally, anybody can occupy that parklet. But if its design language, like its materials and its appearance, make it look like it's part of the cafe next door, people are generally not going to feel like there's there's a subtle message there that, you know, if you're not buying coffee from this cafe, maybe you're not welcome. Even if there's like a little sign that's mandated by the city that says, well, no, no, everybody is welcome it starts to become a question of like, well, do I feel comfortable in this space? And, you know, turns out that there are certain demographics that do feel comfortable because they can afford to buy, you know, a $10 latte and, and sort of sit there and feel like they're not breaking any rules. But there are people who will just walk on by because they don't feel like that's a place for them. I mean, that's the sort of insidiousness of it too, right? Is that even if it's a known law that you can occupy that space, how other people are occupying that space and how that space is designed can all contribute to whether or not you feel welcome there or not. Yeah, in practice, where we decide to put ourselves in public space, I think has a lot more to do with the people around us and how we feel true or not, we're being perceived by them and a lot less to do with what the technical laws are. And I think also that leaking of the private sphere into what really is meant to be a public space is another very sneaky and insidious theme that I see generally when I think about walkability and enriching the public sphere. A lot of times, like the most walkable places in most cities and towns are commercial districts. They're shopping districts. And there are so many examples in every city I've ever been to where that's the case. And, you know, the message that we're sending consciously or not is if you want to be here and sit on this bench and walk around this plaza, like you better have a shopping bag in your hand um, because yeah. that's what this space is for. I mean, I, I grew up in, in Minneapolis, which is has the dubious honor of being like the home to the first big suburban shopping mall and the Mall of America. <laughs> I mean, it, the weather makes 
indoor things more appealing here. I mean, I remember when, when I was young and the Mall of America engaged some rule that you couldn't be in there unaccompanied by an adult if you were under 16 at certain hours. And I remember having this sort of visceral reaction like, wait a second, they can't do that because, you know, we, we were kind of conditioned to think, well, this is like a public space, right? But it's like, no, it's it's not. <laughs> like, it, it might feel like you can walk around and do whatever you want whenever you want. But it's different. And that has a lot of implications. Like, like as we have more privatized space like that, that feels public, that has a lot of implications for, you know, who feels comfortable where and who can do what where and the kinds of, you know, profiling that can go on in those spaces based on whatever essentially this private entity wants to profile about, right? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles and the big, like, hangout in my teen days uh, was the Third Street Promenade which is maybe half a mile long that's closed to cars. It's an outdoor mall kind of main street, Frankenstein. Um, I don't even know what to compare it to because I haven't really found other stuff like that on the East Coast. And that's where we would hang out on a Friday night when I was 14 and, and didn't have anything else to do because that was the public space, but it was entirely built around. There really wasn't anything to do there but go into stores or sit on the benches and like watch the buskers. Yeah. There's both a, a, like this larger tendency towards having more privatized space than public space and this blurring of the lines, right? Where it's like, I think people like that trend is only continued where people just are increasingly unsure of, are they really in public space? What are they allowed to do in this space? And, and sort of bringing it back to parklets. I, mean, I, I think about like the first example or what's sort of considered the first example. It's like, Cops actually drove by and basically asked, like, what are you doing here? And for whatever reason, I have theories, but for whatever reason, didn't kick those people out, right? They were convinced that, oh, no, this is okay. But, you know, I think it's like, what do you look like? What do you appear to be doing? I mean, it becomes very subjective, even in public space. Who decides to enforce what based on whatever subjective criteria they may have? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think all of this sort of... <laughs> bringing us into now and what cities might look like going forward, the pandemic has, has reshaped public space in so many ways. There's been a proliferation of outdoor seating, you know, going back to like, essentially it's in many ways kind of the same idea of the parklet, but a private entity. Yes, we're giving up parking spaces towards a more social use. I'm all about that. But for the most part, they are restaurants and stores extending themselves into the street. So it is still an expansion of the private sphere into the public sphere. Yeah, and like any good urbanist, I'm all for less parking, <laughs> you know, in general. But it's also, you know, when, when it happens in this way, this kind of unplanned, uncoordinated, ad hoc way, I at least think about what are the secondary effects of this, right? It's like, you know, I would love for them to, to strip most parking out of most downtowns. But then you have to ask, well, is there good alternative transit options for people who can't afford to live in the city, right? Is there good public transportation such that people who don't live in the immediate area have access to get to these spaces or even get through these spaces, right? If we turned downtown Oakland into an entirely walkable community, there are people who, who need to drive to get there for work. There's people who need to drive through there to get to other places. 
So all of these things, like I, I kind of love seeing all this pop up experimentation this past year, but I also am very kind of cautious about <laughs> what the unexpected consequences can be of, of these kinds of actions, right? It's like it bears analysis before we go too far towards just saying, well, it's just it's good because there's less parking, which is true, but it's sort of one layer of the onion. Yeah. And I think even like the idea that these outcomes, these very racially disparate outcomes are unexpected is a very white centric idea because like if we have black planners in the room leading the charge, like <laughs> their lived experience will tell them that certain things are, are going to be experienced in a particular way. And so, yeah, I think oftentimes as white urbanists, white walkability advocates, white urban planners, et cetera, we're like, oh, well, I didn't think about this unintended outcome because it's like, well, you're not, you're clearly not talking to the right people. Or maybe you heard it, but you chose to ignore it because you liked your idea and you didn't want to give it up, even though you knew that the outcome would be racialized. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and that gets to, and I know you've put a lot of work into and thought into this, but I think that gets to this kind of core issue of just like, yeah, who gets to have a say? Who feels comfortable having a say? Like, who feels welcome to have a say? How do these mechanisms even work? Most people don't know, right? Like, I'm, I'm a, I have a background in this, and even I find it hard to sometimes figure out. So, as a member of the public, like, how do I gain access and talk to the right people who are making these decisions? It's a very daunting world out there, and so uh, getting all of these voices heard is, to me, like. The, the biggest project of an urbanist, of a planner, of a designer, is how do you get all the people to the table? And how do you talk to communities? And and in that sense, too, like, this is why I'm really skeptical of, like, one-size-fits-all approaches. Like, some places, complete streets or shared streets might work, but not every place. And, and so this kind of localization and talking to communities, to me, is, like, a really big part of figuring out place-specific solutions, too. Yeah, and I think something I love about using stories as a tool for educating and organizing and the fact that in 99% Invisible, the podcast and the book, you you really do focus down on these individual stories of, of people in a moment in time making a decision based off of, you know, whatever they knew or whatever they were dealing with at the time. And I always really appreciate when we can kind of scale back and think about the city at the scale of one, like at the scale of one person's individual experience. Because I think ultimately in terms of how we interact with cities, when we get into this high level urban planning sphere, whether it's in academia or in practice, it's easy to forget that when most people step out the door each day, they're not making their decisions based off of like all this empirical research and, and process and bureaucracy and like what things should be like people. That's not how people make decisions. <laughs> they make decisions based off of their lived experience, based off of their immediate needs, based off of the people around them. Like that's. And so I think when I think about those decisions through the lens of a story, I find it very illuminating and it's a good reminder to be like, no, but this is, let's think about how people actually experience cities. Yeah. 
I mean, I always come back to William H. White. I mean, it's very dated now, but I just it was really compelling to me when I sort of first saw his work, where he basically was just going around New York City looking at how people actually use parks. Instead of speculating in sort of some grand way or, or using theory to try to analyze the nature of the park, he just was like, well, where do people sit? Do they sit there if there's sun or if there's shade? Like, where do people cross the park? Like, what kinds of parks do people like to sit in? And that kind of empirical research is often, I, feel, I find it's lacking from a lot of design disciplines, right? I mean, urban design, architecture, like this idea that we're going to have, uh, you know, a fully formed idea that springs from the brain of some genius planner or designer is a bit flawed. And I think that the kind of the most important part of the design process really is like that sort of first level of research and analysis and site analysis and talking to people who are passing through the area and like trying to figure out how is this actually used and what would actually benefit somebody here rather than I have this great idea for a thing. I know people are going to love it. Right. And in a way, maybe some people see it as tedious or complex, but to me, that's, that's where it gets really human, right? Is when you're, when you're out in the street and you're doing that kind of site analysis and city analysis and like trying to figure out what is the problem we're trying to solve before putting down a proposed solution? Oh boy, you really just opened up a can of worms. I could go <laughs> Sorry. on that topic. No, I just, that I, this is like one of my favorite things to talk about. So I'm going to reel myself in looking at the time. I have one more question and then we can open it up to the group. Just sort of, you know, we, we talked a little bit about COVID-19, but I think I would love to hear from you if there are any specific examples you've seen in your work of ways that you think the design of cities is going to change based off of this past year plus. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the things are accelerations of, of things we're already seeing. I think parklets and that kind of thing, that's going to have to be discussed. Like how much how much of that change has been good long-term versus good as just an ad hoc measure when we need to socially distance. And again, it's like, I recommend taking a very... <laughs> careful approach towards that, not just saying, well, it's necessarily good because it means less parking and more public space. Well, is it truly public? Who is it less parking for? I mean, I think I'm optimistic about it and I like that trajectory, but I also want to make sure that we're being really careful about like who's benefiting from that. And the other thing that this is like a side obsession that I'm, <laughs> I'm just really curious to see how it pans out. I think this work from home thing is an acceleration of a trend that existed and I think that we will see some some bounce back as people want to go back to offices and offices need to have people back for various reasons. But at the moment, at least, we have this really strange phenomena where housing has just, which was already expensive going into this, is even more expensive now. And business real estate, you know, these big companies are vacating these entire floors of these downtown buildings. And I'm a big fan of how buildings learn by Stuart Brand. It's kind of a classic. And it's one of his main points is that, you know, a building when it's built, that's just a fraction of what it will become, right? Like it's going to change over time. It's going to change uses. It's going to get redesigned. It's going to get remodeled. So this idea of like the building as like this permanent object is, is a very limited way of viewing it. And I'm really curious to see what kind of adaptive reuse we will or won't get out of this process. And, and maybe there's a huge opportunity to turn some of this commercial real estate into residential real estate, bring down housing prices, which is good for everybody, bring more people back into cities, which is good for walkability. And I mean, maybe I'm pipe dreaming here. I like speculative fiction, but I like to think about what could happen. And so I'm not predicting that this will happen, but that's 
to anybody out there who's in a position to to think about this or analyze it, if I was working in the in the field, that's what I would be really curious about and trying to see if there are ways to make that work. Because we have the kind of this confluence of problems, but maybe there's a way to fit them together to make it actually be a solution. Yeah. I mean, I love the idea of reusing office buildings for housing, especially in a city like Boston, where it's so anchored around downtown Boston, and it's so heavily commercial in like a very certain (laughs) urban core. And I think of a redistribution and almost a decentralization of cities that are so downtown focused could be very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at I look at cities like um, San Francisco and Oakland. It's like there are people who are commuting an hour and a half to two hours every day to get into their jobs. And it's like, to some extent, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to promote sprawl, but <laughs> to some extent, we need more centers so that not everybody has to make that journey, right? For economic reasons, for environmental reasons, I, it'll be very interesting to see if any of this really changes or if these sort of uneven dynamics out there remain, but... But that's one thing I hope maybe will be a good outcome eventually, but we'll see. Well, that's my, that's my alarm to remind that's you. That time to open. <laughs> I, I plan that uh, to open up to questions from the group. Becky, do you want me to take the questions or? Um, I'm happy to raise them if that just makes your lives a little bit easier. Not having to right. I already see one from the colloquium watch party that I'm yeah. interested to dig into. Should we start there? Yeah, so the Cloak and Watch Party asks, what does the growth in the Amazon culture mean for cities, design, and walkability? Have the possibilities changed with the pandemic and remote shopping patterns? <laughs> we actually kind of talked about this the other day. Yeah, like. we did a bit. It's funny, I mean, I, whenever I think of Amazon, the first thing I think of is Seattle, where I lived for a long time, and about <laughs> the not all positive effects that Seattle's headquarters have had there. I, I know that's sort of not the nature of the question, but that's just kind of where my mind goes is to like the central district of Seattle. I mean, we, yeah, we were just, we were just talking about this. Turns out Lily has done some, to me, fascinating research about how we move goods within cities and like how maybe those systems aren't as efficient. You, you want to answer this one, Lily? I'm really curious if I like this stuff. <laughs> I'm a nerd. Okay. Uh, um, so the summer between at UEP, we do um, like a fellowship internship. And so I did mine with the Boston New Urban Mechanics in the mayor's office. And my summer project was looking at urban freight and specifically the outsize impact that urban freight has on walkability and biking safety. Because while vehicles over 10,000 pounds represent like 3% of vehicles on the road, they represent something like 12% of fatalities. And that's averaged across the whole country. When you get into really dense places like New York City, I'm going to have to fact check myself on this, but I, I believe it's in the like 30 plus percent in New York City of fatalities are caused by large vehicles rather than, you know, your typical passenger vehicle. And so it poses a huge challenge because yes, we have, especially these days um, with more and more remote shopping. I mean, everywhere you go, you see these massive, I mean, whether it's an Amazon truck or, or anything, our entire trucking system is, is deeply, deeply flawed and not geared towards 
the urban environment, especially in cities like Boston, where we have all these narrow little streets that twist and, and turn, and we have these massive vehicles trying to fit down them. It just causes an indescribable amount of danger and, and other problems. So to turn to solutions, one thing that I came across in my research is in London, Transport for London has developed the CLOCS system, C-L-O-C-S, which stands for like Construction Logistics Operation Center something. And there's many components to it from driver training and having drivers use, what's the thing where you put the goggles on, the <laughs> fake life <laughs> video? Uh, augmented reality? Augmented reality. Oh, really? No, it, uh, interesting. Quarantine's really got my brain. So to like put them in different driving scenarios and like let them practice. So they've done, they're, they're hitting many different points and drivers have to get recertified every couple of years. And there's this whole, these new standards, but a big part of it. And I think something that is going to be critical for the future of cities and walkability is again, a redistribution and sort of decentralization of how we do trucking in this country, particularly when it comes to urban environments. So a big key piece of that is rather than having one massive distribution center outside a city and having these huge, you know, 18,000 plus trucks um, going through urban cores, having many smaller distribution centers. And so you can have, whether it's a van or you can have cargo bikes, like you can have people using, uh, you know, sort of micro mobility last mile options for deliveries. One of the things I really like about this too is that, again, it dovetails with something we're seeing accelerating since COVID, right? It's like the, there have been more people shopping from home and already there's been this movement to change stores that used to be like walk-in stores designed for customers to be basically like just micro distribution centers in cities. And so I feel like as good an idea as that was a year ago, it's even more relevant now because our habits have changed, but also because there's already movement to kind of take these smaller stores and say, well, we could treat this like an urban distribution center. It's not a big leap. We're already doing it, right? We already have these kind of shoppers going around, buying things, putting them in the carts, bringing people out there. Like this seems to me like a next logical step. Yeah. And I think it sort of fits into what I see as very much the trend of urban planning over the past 150 years has been from segmentation, cutting everything up and like, okay, we put the white people over here, we put the black people over here, we put the industrial stuff over here, and we put the, it's like every, everything separated. And now I think urban planning has become much more of a process of like, how do we bring these things back? And I think COVID, in the same way that like COVID has sort of, I'm in the process of, of moving to a new house and as we're thinking about how we want to set up our house, I sort of realized like, what are rooms anymore? Like what's a dining room? What's a living, you know, it's all become, you know, we work out in the living room and I, I do my work at the dining room table. Like even the lines of our own homes are becoming more and more blurry. And so I think I would love to see a future in which we kind of take that same idea into cities and like, can a, can a store be more than a store? You know, my local reliable market, which is my favorite place in the world. They have an amazing selection of Asian food and really good beer. They're also a UPS drop-off and like just things like that, where it's like, I can take care of many of my tasks. I can walk there and take care of multiple things 
in one go, I would love to see more kind of multi-use like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I just saw a question in the chat, which is, well, I'm curious to see what you, what you have to say about this too, but somebody, somebody asks, podcasting is an auditory medium, but we're talking about design. <laughs> and I think it's a fascinating question. And, and I, what I like about talking about design without having pictures is that it really forces you to get to the meat of the thing that you're talking about. There's like two ways to basically talk about design in a podcast. One is to go overboard and really describe a thing in great detail. And one is to take like the one or two key details that are relevant to what you're talking about with respect to that design. An example that comes to mind is the kidney bean shaped pool. I think just from saying that, you probably know what I'm talking about. Or I could describe it as being shaped a little like a boomerang. And we did a whole story on this, but that was really all the language you needed to get an idea of what this designed object was like. And the rest, it's like you fill in with your imagination. It's like, well, you know, skateboarders skate through these things. And, you know, you think of like mid-century California and the rest of it, you can focus more on painting a picture with words than with, you know, images can actually become a distraction because you get focused on the details of the image rather than the one or two relevant things about that design. I'm curious, I mean, Lily, you, you too produced a podcast about visual, you know, sort of visual interactive things, cities, big things. How did you kind of think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think sort of going back to what we talked about earlier and the focus on stories and the experience of the individual. I mean, I really ultimately, like I said, it took me forever. <laughs> it took me twice as long to do as I had budgeted. But what I really ultimately honed in on is like, a set of individuals and telling their stories and how they experience the city. And so, I mean, I think also ultimately it depends on your goal. I mean, if your goal is to get people to understand the technical aspects of like a raised crosswalk or, you know, like understand how, you know, different traffic light patterns. Like if you want people to get into the nitty gritty of like, what does the grade have to be on a curb cut? Like maybe a podcast isn't the best medium. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe you do just need an infographic, but I think my goal was really to help people kind of put themselves in the shoes of like, what is the experience for these people of being in an urban environment and walking? Yeah. And that's how I feel about IMPI too. It's like, it, yeah, it depends on what your focus is. It's like, I'm not going to teach you the technical ins, ins and outs of this or the, the stylistic characteristics of brutalist that I'm here to tell you a story. And, and if you, you know, you want to get more into it later, you can always Google around. I mean, there's Google for that. If you want just the facts, there's Google <laughs> and Google image search. But if you want the stories, I mean, that's which are more personal. And I think in a lot of cases, more compelling. It's like audio is a really great medium for that. Yeah. I see another question in the chat from Elizabeth Hammond. Uh, what are some of the ways we can encourage slash retain walkability in our communities, especially as you get out of urban centers? I mean, that's such a, I feel like ever since like new urbanism became a thing, this has been like the biggest tension. I don't know the answer. <laughs> I'll say that up front. I do not know the answer. I've seen good examples, but very few of them in America. I've seen very few places in America solve this well. And so I don't know. I mean, I've seen great examples of it solved horribly. I'm thinking of you, Bellevue, Washington. 
but it's just, it's just a hard question. I think it's it's very contextual. Yeah, no, they just added no one has great answers. I mean, I think that that's the thing, and I don't either. I'm I'm one of everyone. I'm sorry. What do you think, Lily? Well, I think a lot of things. For one, I saw a tweet the other day that I was like, yeah. That was basically, I'm going to paraphrase it, that in the transportation advocacy world, we talk a lot about like car free and getting people to go car less. And that that is probably too radical of a goal for most Americans, especially right now. And so to really kind of think like more realistically, an attainable goal that would still have a huge impact on the environment and on cities is just to get people to go down to one car per household. Yeah, it's really doable. People do not realize how doable that is. I mean, it depends, right? Sometimes you've got jobs in opposite directions and there's no public transit. But I swear, most families could do with one car and it would be a huge step in the right direction. No walkability, pun intended. That can be the title. I love puns, so that can be the title of my next podcast. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about, like how to to kind of package and sell to people because it's not appealing. But the truth is, I think that we need to kind of sacrifice what we think we have the right to be able to do. I mean, that wasn't very well said, but essentially, so my partner and I went from being a two car household to a one car household. And that was something that, you know, I recognize we live in Somerville, everyday activities are very walkable and we weren't using our cars but you know once we made that decision it does there was a limiting factor when i was applying for jobs in the fall after grad school i was only applying to places i knew i could get by public transport or walking or biking and so that was a choice i made there were plenty of jobs i saw city planning jobs out in neighboring suburbs or that I didn't apply for because I was committed to not having a car commute for work. So I recognize that that's not a choice (laughs) everyone's going to make and is a privilege that I have that I could be picky in that way. But I think something that COVID has given me that I hope (laughs) we can find a way to expand this is stepping outside of the capitalistic grind that just expects you to squeeze the maximum efficiency out of every single possible day and accept the idea that maybe taking a little bit longer to get somewhere is okay and that there are other benefits to be gained from it. I mean, also, in my experience, driving, you know, at least on the bus, you can like read a book, but as you can tell, I'm still really finding the the words for this. But I think we need to have a conversation about like, generally, if we want to hit our climate goals, (laughs) we all need to like scale our lives back. We need to consume less and travel less. And I don't know how we're going to get people to do that, but we need some sort of like serious national campaign of getting people to recognize that the lives we're used to living are not sustainable. Yeah, I mean, the, the the best examples I can think of in the U.S. are places like Chicago, where I've, I've spent some time. My brother lived there for a long time, and especially for a U.S. city, but even in general, it has a really good public transit system. The buses are, are pretty good. The trains are great. And, you know, thinking about this question of, like, walkable neighborhoods outside of cities, well, technically, they're not all outside of the city, right? But if you think about it, like, 
It takes a long time to get between neighborhoods in Chicago by car. And the fact that you can get there faster by train and not have to worry about parking a car if you go by train. I'm thinking about, about like little places, you know, it's like around these stops have grown up these little kind of town centers. And so as cliche as it is, it's like to me, the most obvious answer is alternative transit, right? Having ways to get to these places that aren't cars. And then you can get there and you can walk around and enjoy a hot dog, go to the indie record store, whatever floats your boat. And the places where I've seen that sort of best materialize, in this country at least, has been around public transportation stops, right? Especially train stops, because people love trains. What can I say? And I think I'll say one more thing and then I'll stop, uh, which is just that I want to point to Allie and Jessica shared something in the chat. I'm guessing this came from Allie about building infrastructure, pedestrian infrastructure between residential areas and grocery stores. So I think that's a great thinking about like, it's unreasonable to expect everyone en masse to just give up their cars and give up driving forever. But can we make people's day-to-day basic tasks of life accessible without a car? Because we know that in the state of Massachusetts, a quarter of driving trips are under half a mile. And that's for an able-bodied person, that is a walkable distance. So I think that's where we really need to focus is getting rid of all of those millions and billions of short trips that people take every day. Yeah. I mean, I I won't go too far down this path, but like food deserts are just like a thing that I'm obsessed with. Like I'm obsessed with the problem. I'm obsessed with various proposed solutions, but like, yeah, just making it so that everybody has access to the basic things of life, like food within walking distance. I mean, it's, it's not a simple project to solve, but solving that would dramatically reduce our reliance on cars. Anyway, I could do a whole podcast on that, but (laughs) I'll stop there. Maybe we'll do something on that. (laughs) All right, Uh, Beck, you better start talking or we're not going to show No, no, no. And I, and I hate to interrupt because it is such an amazing, fascinating topic and conversation, but that does provide me with some good transition fodder, which is we will have a new colloquium series format TBD next year. And so topics like these about walkability, about food deserts, about the number of vehicles per household are all excellent potential topics if people have ideas. You can always contact Julian on this call with your information and with what interests you. And I think, you know, if you want to get involved with organizations like the Student Planning and Policy Association, we had the honor this year of organizing two different colloquial sessions, uh, one in the fall that was on housing access and this one today. So that is a great opportunity to help drive conversations that are interesting to you. And I will turn it back over to Julian for last words. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Becky. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Lily, for a fantastic interactive presentation. That was so good. And uh, as Becky said, Perry and I will be running the Cities at Tufts Colloquium next year, and we're looking for ideas. We'll use some of our ideas, but feed in any possible topics that you want covered and just let either Perry or I know. Thanks for coming, and um, we'll see you in the fall. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's lecture. You can find out more information about Kurt Kolstedt and the 99% Invisible podcast and their new book by visiting 99percentinvisible.org. Lily Link's five-part podcast series, Footnotes, can be found at footnotespod.com. This was the final live event of the season. Stay tuned for bonus content we'll be releasing between now and the next Cities of Tufts Colloquium this fall. 
I'll be moderating two upcoming events that you might be interested in checking out. The first is Community Resilience Strategies in California on Thursday, April 29th. It will feature presentations and my conversation with Lisa Beyer and Greg Kochanowski and is co-hosted by the American Institute of Architects San Francisco chapter and the Center for Architecture and Design. Register for tickets at centersf.org. And on Thursday, May 20th, Shareable is co-producing a free event focused on how public libraries can be and already are a part of the solution to food insecurity. Find out more information and register for tickets on shareable.net. Cities at Tufts Lectures is produced by Tufts University and Shareable with support from the Kresge Foundation. Most lectures are moderated by Professor Julian Adjuman and organized in partnership with research assistants Megan Tenhoff and Perry Scheinbaum. Today's episode was co-hosted by Becky Eidelman and the Tufts Student Policy and Planning Association. Light Without Dark by Cultivate Beats is our theme song. Robert Raymond is our audio editor. Elizabeth Carr manages communications and editorial with support from Neil Gorenflow. Jocelyn Beal handles operations, and the series is produced and hosted by me, Tom Llewellyn. Please continue sharing the show. Hit subscribe so you don't ever miss an episode, and leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so that this knowledge can reach people outside of our collective bubbles. That's it for this week's show. Here's a final thought. If I had to boil it down into one thing, it would be to get people to be aware of their surroundings and to come at their surroundings with a critical perspective and say, okay, I'm not gonna just take this for granted. I'm gonna inquire about why that thing is the way it is. And there's always a reason. And sometimes it's a good reason. Sometimes it's a horrible reason. But either way, until we interrogate these things, we can't really begin to evaluate whether or not they're good or bad for our built environments. I'm Ella Brady, and this has been the UE Podcast. As always, contact us at tuftsueepodcast at gmail.com to get involved. Thanks for listening, and see you in two weeks.